she was nominated by President Bush to serve on the Supreme Court, and it's our loss that that never happened. Harriet Myers. Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's Patreon-only episode of 5 to 4, the hosts are talking about Harriet Myers. Myers was picked for the Supreme Court by George W. Bush. But shortly after she was tapped, her nomination stumbled, as critics on the right began to question her conservative bona fides. In the end, Myers withdrew her candidacy. And what we got instead was Justice Samuel Alito. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have lost track of our civil rights, like Delta has lost track of your luggage. Mm. I'm Peter. <laughs> and I'm here with Rhiannon. Did that happen? Not to me, but apparently this is an epidemic. Airlines are uh, losing luggage. I don't know if it's like a staffing issue or something, but me and the fiance are headed on a quick flight this weekend. And she was like, don't check your bags. They're losing them. And I looked it up and it's true. It's true. <laughs> Like I do anytime my fiance tells me something, I look it up on the internet to confirm whether it's true. Uh, and this one was true. I think um I think this is the second metaphor to be dedicated to Delta. That might be right. Yeah. Yeah. They impact my life <laughs> quite a bit more than I would like. Obviously, Michael is not with us today. He's sick. Um, yesterday we were going to record and he said, no, I'll, I feel too sick. Let me get some rest and then maybe we can record tomorrow. And then today he was like, no, I'm still sick. <laughs> so now we're just, we're just doing it without the him. The gall. But he sent us some of his thoughts. Yes. So we're going to, we're going to give you some of his ideas. And pass them off as our own. That's right. Absolutely mm-hmm. right. Today's episode, much requested. Obviously, you're here because you're a premium subscriber and you get the premium content. That's right. We are talking about the saga of Harriet Meyer's failed nomination to the Supreme Court in 2005. Drama. The basic story here is simple. In July of 2005, Sandra Day O'Connor announced her retirement from the Supreme Court. President George W. Bush nominated John Roberts to replace her. But shortly after, Chief Justice William Rehnquist Died. Dead. In the ground. Rachel, let's get some music in there. Yeah, yeah. can we uh, jazz that? (laughs) Jazz that up. Jazz jazz it. Really jazz that up. (laughs) That opened up the chief justice seat. So Bush shifted the Roberts nomination around, withdrawing it, and then renominating him to be the chief justice. He then nominated Harriet Myers, his longtime friend and political ally, to fill Sandra Day O'Connor's seat. What followed was one of the quickest crash and burns in (laughs) Supreme Court nomination history. Speaking about Delta. (laughs) (laughs) Myers withdrew her nomination just a few weeks later. The surface level story here is that she lacked experience and was too close to the president. She had never been a judge or an academic. But she was a practicing lawyer who sort of alternated between private practice and working in politics. A little deeper here is a story about ideology and about an ascendant conservative legal movement that was starting to flex its muscle and establish itself as one of the most powerful players 
in American politics. Yeah. So first, let's talk about Harriet Myers. Yeah. So born and raised in Dallas, the triple D, mm. the dirty D. She's a Texas girly, okay? Um, <laughs> What's triple D? What? Your mom's face. Okay. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Sorry, mom. She's a listener. Um, <laughs> yeah, so shout out Texas, I guess. You know, Harriet Myers is exactly the type of conservative woman that came to represent Dallas in like the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. I think also of like Kay Bailey Hutchinson as as one of these Texas kind yeah. of prototypical uh, white women from back in the day. So anyways, Harriet Myers, she went to SMU, that's Southern Masochist University. I mean, Southern Methodist University. Uh, <laughs> she went there for undergrad and law school, graduated with her JD in 1970. And she started her career as a clerk for a federal judge. And then after a couple of years as a clerk, she worked for then it was a a Dallas law firm called Locke, Liddell and Sapp. But after mergers became Locke Lord. If you pay attention Mm -hmm. to these things, you know what that means. I do not. Uh, But yeah, Locke Lord. (laughs) Sort of a a third tier big law firm. Oh, okay, Shade. She was the first woman to be hired by the firm in 1972 and later became the first woman president of the law firm. At that time, you know, she was running a law business that had more than 400 attorneys, so ascended to the top of the organization. In 1985, she became the first woman president of the Dallas Bar Association. And then in 1992, she became the first woman to head the Texas State Bar. She was also the head of the board of editors for the American Bar Association Journal for a while. You know, like, like you said, Peter, she before she gets into politics, she has this long career in private practice where she's doing a lot of like prestigious lawyer stuff, right? She's Mm -hmm. getting these titles. She's participating in a lot of organizations and was also on the Dallas City Council for a little while. She's just like one of these people, right? These people that sort of have all these titles and you're not really sure if they're ever actually working anymore. Right, exactly. It feels like they used to work and now they're just sort of like rotating between different like prestigious positions. Absolutely. And there's no through line in terms of a specialty or like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Or, you know, building your resume in terms of like what legal issues are kind of near and dear to you or you're passionate about or at least like know a lot about, right, to distinguish yourself. But participation in the organizations, she did a lot of that. Yeah. So she ends up meeting George W. Bush in 1989 through a mutual friend, and she sort of strikes up this really deep friendship that would last for decades, um, reportedly last to this day, with George W. Bush. And back in the late 80s, early 90s, she became his personal attorney. She then worked for the Bush presidential campaign in 2000. And when he was handed the presidency, uh, she moved to D.C. to work as assistant to the president and also as staff secretary. In 2003, she became deputy chief of staff for policy. And then in late 2004, she became White House counsel, basically the top lawyer that advises and represents the office of the White House. Mm-hmm. At that point in late 2004, when she became White House counsel, you know, it wouldn't even be another year before Sandra Day O'Connor retires. And, you know, 
that tees up the nomination of Harriet Myers. So just want to highlight, I guess, she's never been a judge. Right. That's a thing. Yeah. And I think another important thing to understand is the sort of the backdrop of the conservative legal movement here. Yes. Over the course of the 80s and 90s, as we've discussed many times, the Federalist Society is strengthening. The conservative legal movement is is sort of ascending in power. And one of their rallying cries is Justice Souter, who they believe drifted left after being nominated by uh, George Bush Sr. to the seat, right? Yeah. At the time of his nomination, it was believed that there were four votes to overturn Roe on the court. And so Souter could be the fifth. Bush the first wanted someone with very little paper trail so as to avoid controversy given the disaster of Robert Bork yeah. just prior. Right. So he picks Souter, a guy who's sort of barely known outside of New Hampshire. His biggest backer was a moderate Republican senator and close personal friend, Warren Rudman, who had first recommended him to Bush and became a strong advocate for him in the Senate. The thing is, is that Rudman was pro-choice, very Mm pro-choice, which was a thing that at the time still flew in the GOP. Right. And while he worked to convince people that Souter would be a reliable conservative, he understood that he was sort of planting a mole on the court. Uh, And this is according to reporting by Bob Woodward about the whole uh, ordeal. So conservatives understood Souter to have drifted leftward Although it's probably more accurate to say that it was a relatively moderate guy just sort of being himself. Yeah. uh, Maybe nudging left slightly over the course of his career in some ways. And in a lot of ways, this is just as important as Bork in shaping the conservative movement and the growth of the Federalist Society as a credentialing organization for judicial nominees. Yeah. Because Bork had shown that being honest about your views can get a nomination killed. Right. And then Souter, on the other hand, showed that having no paper trail could lead to a secret liberal, right? Yeah. Someone you thought was conservative, but it turns out they're not. Right. So Republicans had sort of absorbed the Bork lesson first and then the Souter lesson, where if someone lacks a paper trail showing their conservative bona fides, they're susceptible to either drifting left or revealing their hidden liberalism. Yeah. And so that's sort of like the political backdrop here, the bigger picture political backdrop. Yeah, exactly. And so George W. Bush nominates John Roberts to replace her, actually. But then Chief Justice Rehnquist dies. And we should just mention, like, the way it works generally is that a president is nominating someone to a specific seat on the court. So, you know, th- that's why there's this formality of, like, withdrawing a nomination and then renominating him for, for a different seat, right? So John Roberts is confirmed for the position of chief justice of the Supreme Court, but that leaves O'Connor's spot still open. And for that, George W. Bush nominates Harriet Myers. Right. So let's talk about some of the initial reactions to the nomination, because things move very quickly here. Yes. Off the bat, Harry Reid, Democratic senator, praises the choice. He had sort of made it clear to the president earlier that he would support Myers as a nominee. And he praised the choice because he thought it was good to have someone outside of the sort of usual channels, someone who's not 
an elite academic or judge, right? right? Some, right. Someone who's just a normal lawyer. On the other hand, other people in liberal and democratic circles aren't so enthused. Some establishment liberal media like the New Republic come out against her. She takes an early media hit when several personal notes she sent the Bushes are made public shortly after the nomination. Those included notes on George Bush's 51st birthday where she said, you're the best governor ever. Yeah. And sort of like similarly informal notes, right? Yeah. Where the narrative you were seeing from the media is like, this is not how a Supreme Court justice speaks. Right, right. Informal, personal. Yeah. Yeah. This uh-huh. is, these are the notes of a common moron. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just just this sort of like elitism, you know, she was just sending them like nice notes. But it's also driving this narrative that she's a Bush crony, right? Yeah. That they are a little too close, right? So you, you have these sort of dual narratives being uh, moved forward. Uh, not only is she a middling intellect, but she is a little too close to the president yes. uh, for comfort. Yeah. So you had some Democratic opposition for sure, but... Very quickly, it's clear that the real opposition to Myers is actually coming from the right. Almost immediately after the announcement, there is a negative reaction from conservatives claiming that Myers lacks ideological bona fides and a paper trail that shows her commitment to the cause. Right. The nomination uh, leaks a few hours early, as it generally does. And minutes before the official announcement, conservative activist Manuel Miranda, no relation to Lynn, I imagine, uh, this is... (laughs) I was like really confused when I was reading this initially. (laughs) (laughs) He's a well-regarded Republican activist who uh, worked at times in the Senate and focused on the courts. He circulates an email statement calling Myers, quote, possibly the most unqualified choice since Abe Fortas. Mm. Now, interesting, interesting sort of comparison here because Abe Fortas was a justice who in the late 60s was pressured into resigning after scandals driven by Republican senators and Richard Nixon. And a lot of those scandals revolved around how close Fortas was to LBJ, right. who was the president while Fortas was in office. And so you're you're sort of seeing this alignment where they're implicitly accusing her of being a potential crony. Exactly. Bill Kristol, then at the Weekly Standard, had been coincidentally scheduled to appear on Fox News the day of the announcement. And he says that he is disappointed and demoralized by the choice. Mm -hmm. So you're very quickly seeing these sort of establishment Republican media figures show their displeasure. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, initial polling even finds kind of muted support for Myers, even among, like we're saying, even among Republicans. Maybe it was because John Roberts went first, right? And he made mm-hmm. it through with bipartisan support and kind of no issues. But the response from conservatives on the Myers nomination is really markedly less enthusiastic. So polling by Pew showed that in October 2005, about a third of the American public said that they favored Harriet Myers' confirmation. A little less than a third opposed her confirmation and fully 40 percent said they had no opinion at all. By contrast, of course, when Roberts was nominated, the public favored his confirmation two to one. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Myers, it looked like it was like about even and a plurality of people having no opinion at all. 
So with this kind of maybe you could say like bubbling conservative opposition to the Myers nomination happening behind the scenes, the White House is is starting to scramble a little bit and reassure everyone that Myers is reliably conservative. She's reliably intellectual and is going to do what they need her to do on the Supreme Court, basically. Mm-hmm. So remember, of course, we kind of introduced this already, but remember, this is a little over a decade after Planned Parenthood began. Casey, which is when conservatives hoped, thought that the Supreme Court would overturn Roe, right? And then you had eight years of the Clinton presidency after that. And now there's a conservative in the White House in George W. Bush. So conservatives, especially religious conservatives, are expecting a religious conservative to be nominated to the Supreme Court to oppose Roe versus Wade, right? Like Mm -hmm. they are demanding it and they're kind of confused with Meyer's resume, which is like a little bit milquetoast if you're a psychotic, fanatical conservative. They're confused as to why she's the one being pushed forward. So meanwhile, you know, the White House, like I said, is scrambling, starting to assure everyone that Myers was this deeply religious person, right? Mm -hmm. There was a report that White House surrogates had assured conservatives during a conference call that Myers would vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Like, they're already saying that. Carl Rove, you know, we uh, senior advisor to George W. Bush and also the ugliest Christmas elf, was talking to <laughs> and assuring conservative activists that Myers, you know, was this evangelical Christian and she was opposed to Roe. And then James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family, he stated on his radio program that Carl Rove had assured him personally that Myers was a social conservative and that she had strong Christian beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. So in response to this kind of, I think you could say like maybe middling Republican reaction to the Myers nomination, the White House is doing a little bit of damage control, right? Sending out people to assure all of the big money conservative organizations in the country that um, they should put their support behind Myers because they can trust her as a person of faith, a true conservative. Right. So one of the early parts of the process is that the nominee will meet with senators, right? She'll go into the senator's office and they will ask her whatever questions they want or talk at her, et cetera. And stories start to emerge of those meetings going poorly. Yeah. So she meets with uh, senators Arlen Specter and Pat Leahy, as well as Jeff Sessions. The Los Angeles Times reports, quote, She had a misunderstanding with Spectre over what she told him about the right to privacy. She stumbled over a softball question from Leahy about whom she most admired among past Supreme Court justices. (laughs) Even some Republicans who are inclined to support her came out of their meetings damning her with faint praise. Mm -hmm. Quote, I might have liked a different type of nominee myself, but that's the president's choice, (laughs) Senator Jeff Sessions said after this meeting with Myers. Jeff Sessions. So, yeah, you know, the sort of opportunities she has to win over the Republican politicians who she really needs on her side, not going great. Yeah, exactly. And there's even more problems with her dialogue with the Senate running up to, you know, when confirmation hearings would would have happened. Both Republicans and Democratic senators said publicly that they were displeased with her responses to this standard questionnaire. (laughs) 
there's this questionnaire that the Senate Judiciary Committee submits to a Supreme Court nominee, and the nominee provides written answers, right? It's written questions and and written answers, which are provided ahead of the confirmation hearings to the Senate. You know, and the questions range from questions about career and background to, like, a nominee's approach to constitutional issues, opinions on precedent, all sorts of stuff, right? And even with the written answers to the questions— which everyone assumes, right, are like highly edited and written with a lot of input. Like it's not just this document that you would turn over to the Senate. You would think it would be like well-researched, well-reasoned. Yeah, there's just no reason for it not to be flawless. Exactly, exactly. You can pull on all your resources to submit the perfect, most comprehensive answers that are still sort of like dodging whatever you need to dodge, right? Whatever you need to do could be readily accomplished. Exactly. And yet... The answers that Myers provided, you know, was considered by both Republicans and Democrats to be a flop. In one answer, she's describing her service on the Dallas City Council in the late 80s. And at the time, the city of Dallas was sued for violating the Voting Rights Act. And Myers, in her response, in this written answer, she is describing her work. And she says, quote, the council had to be sure to comply with the proportional representation requirement of the Equal Protection Clause. So here's the thing. There is no proportional representation requirement of the Equal Protection Clause. The Supreme Court by that time had already, by 2005, said multiple times that the Equal Protection Clause does not require that city councils or state legislatures have the same you know, proportion of races represented as the voting population. So, you know, there's just this like a certain perceived lack of vigor there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like law professors at the time are saying, like, that's a terrible answer. Right. It's sort of one thing not to know that sort of thing. Right. It's another to write it all out and presumably have people review it. Yeah. And for that to just get past it. Exactly. Everyone. Yeah. So there's this like perceived lack of vigor, maybe like that you're not intellectually curious or at least like not willing to check over your answers and like make sure your understanding yeah. of the law is right. And Senator Leahy ends up saying publicly that Harriet Meyer's responses to this questionnaire ranged, quote, from incomplete to insulting, end quote. (laughs) And along with Republican Arlen Specter, Leahy asked that Myers resubmit her answers in greater detail. (laughs) By the way, a funny little detail about this. Uh, Of course, this all ends with Harriet Myers withdrawing her nomination. Yeah, we know that. Sort of little known is that after it was clear that she was about to withdraw, she submits the questionnaire anyway. (laughs) So like the last thing that happens in this whole saga is that she submits her revised questionnaire. Um, And there's just like some very low key reporting about it from like SCOTUS blog at the time. It's just like for some reason, Harriet (laughs) Myers has submitted her revised questionnaire and then like it just goes away. No one one ever pays attention to it. Nothing. Throw it in the trash. But I guess she had finished it and was like, well, you know what? I'm going to submit it. Um, and beyond her written work, um, you know, what she submitted to the Senate Judiciary Committee, at least in terms of the questionnaire, she didn't just struggle with that. She struggled also with the in-person practice sessions, right? Mm -hmm. They call these practice sessions the murder boards. You know, it's people who are working on the nomination in the White House. They do this intense questioning, like this grilling of nominees so that the nominee can practice for the confirmation hearing when they're going to be grilled 
controlled by the senators, obviously. Mm -hmm. So she's being asked about constitutional law, about the power of the executive, about speeches she's given in the past, about advice she's given to the office of the White House as White House counsel. And again, she just kind of flops. People report that she doesn't have much to say. She's not very intellectual. She doesn't understand or have experience in some areas of the law. And like that she just doesn't have good responses to questions about past statements she's made. So, for example, she had said in the late 80s, in 89, I believe, that she wasn't a member of the Federalist Society because she didn't like to be a member of partisan organizations, of organizations where you have to have kind of like a a certain political ideology to join and then you get kind of branded with that ideology, right? Mm -hmm. She said that she wasn't a member and by the time it's 2005 and conservative freaks are almost completely in control of who's getting nominated to the Supreme Court and all of that, like she needs to have a better answer in the Federalist Society's eyes for why she wasn't a member, right? I have her full quote here. She says, I have tried to avoid memberships and organizations that were politically charged with one viewpoint or the other. For example, I wouldn't belong to the Federalist Society any more than she trails off. I just feel like it's better to not be involved in organizations that seem to color your view one way or the other for people who are examining you. So while she's fucking up in front of the senators and all of the establishment types are losing faith in her, this stuff is coming out and the conservative legal movement is starting to rally against her. Um, Not only has she said that she's wary of affiliations with the Federalist Society, but People track down some affiliations with like ostensibly liberal organizations. And so they're sort of like, oh, but you're not afraid to partner with, you know, this liberal organization. Right. So these sort of seeds of mistrust that start with the lack of paper trail are now spiraling out of control, where not only is it just a lack of a paper trail, but she's said things that they believe indicate that she might be. A closeted liberal yeah. in some ways. Yeah, the scariest right? thing possible, right. The Washington Post uncovers a 1993 speech where she said that she was wary of legislating religion and morality and said that decisions about abortion should be guided by notions of self-determination. Mm-hmm. That is the kind of liberal bullshit right. that, that the Federalist Society types do not appreciate. Give her the guillotine, yeah. Yeah, so... The dominoes are rapidly falling here. This nomination is falling apart. She has not won over any senators. The opposition from conservative activists and interest groups is only getting stronger. Pod favorite Robert Bork Mm. publishes a Wall Street Journal op-ed in opposition to her, which starts off by saying that with this nomination, quote, the president has damaged the prospects for reform of a left-leaning and imperialistic Supreme Court taken the heart out of a rising generation of constitutional scholars and widened the fissures within the conservative movement. Robert Bork. He also said, a woman on the Supreme Court, a girl judge? What's she going to do when she's on her period, huh? (laughs) (laughs) He specifically calls out his concern that she's not an originalist and claims that this is an insult to the Federalist Society. 
he's furious. He's like, this fucking idiot right, <laughs> gets right. to be on the Supreme Court and I don't. Exactly. So he's specifically speaking to right wing ideologues here sure. with, his, yeah. with his column. But you have mainstream conservatives like David Frum also making the case. David Frum goes on NewsHour to say that Myers is unqualified. Times columnist David Brooks wrote a column that questioned her intellect and said that her writings were full of, quote, vapid abstractions. And when David Brooks is accusing you of speaking in vapid abstractions, (laughs) you know you're in trouble. That's really funny. But it's similar, right? There's an irony to that. There's also an irony to Bork criticizing, you know, the nomination of somebody when Bork himself absolutely crashed his own nomination by being an absolute freak, right? Right. So the kind of attacks on Myers from inside the house, if you will, from from conservatives continue. There's an anti-Myers attack ad that's run by the conservative organization Americans for Better Justice. Mm -hmm. Also affiliated with David Frum, I believe. Yes, yes, that's right. Even the best leaders make mistakes. Conservatives support President Bush, but not Supreme Court nominee Harriet Myers. America deserves better. Go to betterjustice.com. Urge President Bush to withdraw the nomination of Harriet Myers. So all of this, you know, the columns, the attack ad, the dismay and disappointment of Republican senators, all of this leads to some evangelical groups who are essential to the Bush administration's success and policymaking, all of that, right? Some evangelical groups, such as Concerned Women for America, they end up publicly opposing Myers, right? Concerned women and also concerned about women. Concerned women, concerned women. Yeah. They end up asking the Bush administration to withdraw Meyer's nomination. And so it's reported that former Republican Senator Dan Coats, who was kind of tasked with ushering Harriet Myers through the nomination and confirmation process, that he was actually meeting with the chief counsel for Concerned Women for America, trying to get them to publicly support the nomination of Harriet Myers. And it's reported that literally during that meeting, the chief counsel, Jan LaRue, she's called out of the room. And when she comes back, she says that she just spoke to the chairwoman for Concerned Women of America, and they are going to publicly oppose the Myers nomination. That's a rough meeting. Yeah. (laughs) And by the way, we should say Dan Coates, who was the guy who was like supposed to lead the charge on the Myers nomination for uh, the president, his sort of like retrospective writing about this is something we relied on a lot for this. And usually, um, yes, usually we don't cite our sources because I like to sort of create the aura that we just know this stuff. (laughs) But we used uh, Dan Coates' work enough that I think it's worth mentioning that he wrote a lot about this and obviously has sort of like insider's understanding that's pretty useful. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, with opposition kind of stacking up, including among organizations like these evangelical, deeply conservative organizations that the George W. Bush administration really was relying on. Right. With all of that opposition stacking up, Harriet Myers in the late evening of October 26th phones George W. Bush at the White House and tells him that she is withdrawing her nomination. She no longer wants to be considered 
to be a justice on the Supreme Court. And the next day, the 27th at 9 a.m., it's announced that her confirmation process is over. And in the letter that she writes to George W. Bush, Myers writes, quote, I'm concerned that the confirmation process presents a burden for the White House and our staff and is not in the best interests of the country. Hmm. R.I.P. Maybe if she had written <laughs> letters a little more like that right? <laughs> during their friendship. <laughs> process might have gone a little smoother for her. Maybe if she didn't put hearts on top of all of the eyes. <laughs> so in the end, Myers doesn't get on the Supreme Court. Uh, she doesn't even get to the confirmation hearings. Um, instead, she goes back to her job at uh, Lock Lord, where she's been since 2007. Um, she's still a partner there now. And her bio uh, for Lock Lord makes no mention of her nomination unless you count the line, she is well known throughout the United States. So it might be worth noting that Sam Alito gets nominated to the seat ultimately and is, of course, confirmed. This is a downgrade. It should go without saying. And as much of a total dullard as uh, Harriet Myers appears to be, Probably would have been better to just let her take a swing at it. You know, right? let's let's see what she can do. Compared uh, to fucking Sam Alito. Yeah. I mean, who could be worse? Right. Honestly. <laughs> right. So what played out here was maybe the first major political victory of the conservative legal movement. At this point, there hadn't really been a contentious court nomination since Clarence Thomas nearly 15 years prior. In that interim period, the Federalist Society had cemented its position as a central player in Republican politics, and this was their first real test as an organized political body. And they made a pretty clear statement, right? The president yeah. wanted one thing, the conservative legal movement another, and the president lost. Right. Yep. And not only that, but he proceeds to appoint Sam Alito, which reads like an effort to maybe make a peace offering, right? Sort of yeah. apologize for the sin of nominating a non-believer. Right. Beyond that, it's interesting that it appears like what's present here is a recognition across the Republican Party elite that the court is a political and ideological battlefield, right? There's yeah. just an understanding across the board that the stakes here are high and they need an ideological ally not some like pragmatist, right? Exactly. And it's interesting, especially coming right after the Roberts confirmation, you know, for all his talk about calling balls and strikes, everyone watching on the right understood that he was one of them, you know, and they did not know that about Myers. And that was enough to kill the nomination. Yeah. And, you know, it's sort of interesting that after this sort of like clear flex from the Federalist Society, that anyone took like the debate club framing seriously yes. from this point onward, right? right? I mean, it, look, it should have been sort of obvious after like Bush v. Gore that we don't need to take this shit seriously. But once they do this, once they like openly torpedo the Myers nomination, surely if you're on the left, if you're a Democrat, whatever, you have to understand what this organization actually is. And yet it took until really the modern era, like the last couple of years, for it to really sink in. Yeah. And I do think it's worth just saying explicitly, this nomination failed because of opposition from the right, 
from conservatives, right? The opposition on the left, you know, is pretty weak. The Bush crony charge was kind of the best the left could do, especially when you've got a Democratic leader like Harry Reid being like, yeah, okay, she's fine. I'm cool with it, right? (laughs) But I do think there's this interesting kind of premonition of the Trump era in this, you know, in this failed nomination. Mm -hmm. Where it's clear that, like, conservatives, you know, the MAGA movement... Trump's ascendancy at all, a recognition and a reactionary response to the failures of the Republican Party in the Bush era, right? So Hmm. Michael pointed out that like Bush's second term had three big failures. Mm -hmm. The effort to privatize Social Security failed. The push for bipartisan immigration reform failed. And the Harriet Myers nomination failed. And all three of these failures reflected a sort of like cosmopolitan and maybe elitist version of the Republican Party that was on its way out. Like instead, we see the start of the rise of the modern Republican Party, one that is more openly, explicitly organized around like racial hierarchies and the evangelical movement. Right. Mm -hmm. Efforts at bipartisan immigration reform That's going to give way to like the xenophobia of birtherism, you know, Mitt Romney's pledge to make life so miserable that immigrants self-deport. Remember that? And then, of course, Trump, you know, wanting to build the wall, being explicitly racist against non-citizens from Mexico and Central America, you know, all of that. Mm -hmm. Social Security privatization, the Republican Party rarely even talks about that anymore. And maybe a connected pragmatic, moderate judicial nominee could have worked through the 90s. But at this point, that was dead. Right. Right. And the Republican Party then moves on from this nomination, from this failed nomination with some really intense lessons learned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sharp point that you thought of. Um. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Michael. It's the kind of that's the kind of point that I think only you could have thought of. (laughs) Did I sound like I was on a Michael rant? Did it feel did it, did it feel good? You lack his natural anger, but I think I think you got the gist of it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, we were talking about this, but the way that I remember the Harriet Myers saga feels reminiscent of the Trump era. It feels like this early experience of the Trump era because of how stupid it was. Right. Yeah. Like there are many like political phenomena that we now experience very consistently and acutely in the Trump era that we once only used to get like these glimmers of. And this is one of those glimmers. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another one is like when Dick Cheney shot that guy in the face and you were like, well, (laughs) like because you were sort of picturing that White House as like a little bit Benny Hill. And then you realize it's like maybe it's literally a little Benny Hill and people are just. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like the. Like Yosemite Sam uh, with the twisted shotgun blasting right. his, uh, himself in the face. Right. But like, so Bush is tasked with this very important, serious task of nominating someone to the Supreme Court. And he just sort of like picks his friend. Yeah. Right. Like, do I have any friends who could do this? <laughs> yeah. And there's this whole formal process that she has to go to where she's just revealed as demonstrably incompetent mm-hmm. at every turn. An unqualified dullard. Just like couldn't possibly fake her way out of it right, right. not yeah. doesn't have the chops to, yeah. to pretend that she can do this yeah 
that's a very like Trump era sort of a series of events just in how idiotic it feels at every nodal point. The only thing missing here, the only like distinction is that a key feature of the Trump era is that there would be like this strong contingent of politicians and of the electorate actively endorsing all the stupidity, right? Yes. Yep. Thus causing the normal observer to lose their minds and be like, how could you possibly stand behind this woman who, right. <laughs> who is completely incompetent? Right. There would be politicians and, and uh, you know, media types making excuses for her at every turn. That doesn't happen here, in part, I think, because that didn't quite exist yet, but also because Bush was biting the hand that feeds. Bush didn't realize that he wasn't in charge. Right? That's right. Say what you want about Trump. He sort of recognized pretty quickly that the conservative legal movement was important. And that's why he basically says to them, hey, uh, that whole list of nominees you guys have, I'll just use that. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be my list of nominees. Yeah. Fuck it. You know, whoever you want, that's who I want, too. He recognized that they were uh, significant. Maybe he didn't give a shit about that stuff. But I think he just recognized that they uh, were a powerful force in American politics at the time. Bush was the last person to make the mistake of not realizing how powerful the Federalist Society was, yeah. not realizing how powerful the conservative legal movement had become. And I think that's the story here, right? That's what the saga of Harriet Myers indicates. It's sort of the last time anyone would ever forget who's in charge over there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, from this flows... The end of Roe v. Wade, right? The modern 6-3 court. This is sort of like a key turning point in the modern history of the court, at least symbolically, but maybe even in a practical sense. Certainly, the appointment of Sam Alito, as opposed to someone a little more moderate, has changed the complexion of the court. Absolutely. And it's hard not to look back at this as sort of like the last time that maybe something could have gone differently, yeah. right? Or at least when we got notice that nothing could have gone differently. Yeah. This was this yeah. was what was inevitable. Yeah, exactly. Well put. I'm sure Michael would have had like one other smart thing to say or whatever. But Absolutely. Yeah. I also feel like we're sort of learning that we could do this alone and just split the money 50-50. Like we don't have to go thirds I, on this. I do like that. Yeah. Obviously, we would take some hits. Maybe the show is a little stupider, but. He does serve the purpose behind the scenes of. Gently correcting us when we're incorrect about the law. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is important. But maybe we could like pay an intern for that. You know, <laughs> there's there's got to be a way to do it. We'll talk this out. You're a premium yeah. subscriber if you're listening to this. Write in and tell us if we could do it without Michael. Yeah, um, let us know. Get some, let's get some polling in. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for me and Rita to get rich. <laughs> My, one sick day? No, not where I'm from. <laughs> Not in 5-4 land. Okay? Unacceptable. That's not how we run this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. We'll be back in a few weeks. We are taking a little end of summer break. I'm going on a little vacation. Me too. Where are you going, Peter? Uh, this weekend, I'm headed to Panama for a, a wedding. Panama in Central America? Yeah, the, the nation. The nice. Nation. I, yeah, I've got colonialist friends uh, living, <laughs> living in villas there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then I'm going to uh, Rhode Island, the Panama of New England. <laughs> Is that what they call it? <laughs> they do. They do call it that. Going there uh, to 
kick it for a week in a little rental with a small but respectable pool. Uh, oh, so I'm nice. To that. Okay, yeah. yeah. How about you? I'm going to Montreal. Nice. It's yeah. a good time to go being from Texas where it's been like 108 every day. Mm-hmm. Gonna mm-hmm. eat some good food. Uh, gonna yeah. act like I speak French. You know. When we come back, we'll be talking Vega v. Teco case from uh, this past term. Maybe the beginning of the end of Miranda rights, shall we say? Sure. Yeah. Give your Miranda rights a little hug. You don't know how long they're going to be around. (laughs) (laughs) Treat your Miranda rights like your 92-year-old grandmother. Right, that's (laughs) right. Just really linger on those hugs. Yeah. Call your Miranda rights. Tell them you love them. (laughs) (laughs) Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. Rachel Ward is our producer. Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons provide editorial support. Our production manager is Persia Verlin, and our assistant producer is Arlene Arevalo. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY, and our theme song is by Spatial Relations. Can you speak a little French? I can speak a little French, yeah. I majored in French. Damn. You're worldly as shit. You got like Spanish and French and shit. (laughs) I don't really have Spanish. I just have a good accent. Oh, okay. I can roll those R's. That's all you need. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Yeah.